This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein Cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. Good Friday, 2023. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That is 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes. Half past four in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas. 8 p.m. in London and Dublin. 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin. 10 p.m. in Kiev. I got to the V. First time, I think. 10 p.m. in Kiev and Moscow. Now in the same time zone, if not the same country. 10.30 p.m. in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. Midnight 45 in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 3 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. I'm very sorry about that. 5 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. I'm still very sorry. 7 a.m. in Auckland. I'm not so sorry about that because uh, you should be up and at them and uh, chowing down on what for you is already yesterday's stale hot cross buns. And it's even deeper into the Easter weekend in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific. We shall have an Easter poem for you on Easter morn and various other weekend delights as this Easter proceeds. The very first entry in our anthology of Stein's Sunday poems, because a video poetry is where the big bucks are, as everyone knows. Well, actually, nobody knows, just I know. <laughs> Uh, the very first entry in that anthology was Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach, uh, whose most famous lines I think of a lot these days. The sea of faith was once, too, at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long-withdrawing roar. On Dover Beach... The beach at Dover today, that melancholy, long-withdrawing roar, is in fact uh, the sound of a new incoming tide of Albanian men, which is the point. A society without a transcendent meaning is merely an interim phase, and on Dover Beach and elsewhere, what follows is already showing up. 
Nonetheless, on this day of Christ's sacrifice, Christ's gift to man, the numbers are startling. A couple of years back, a report from St. Mary's University in London uh, concluded that in Europe, in the heart of Christendom, Christianity, quote, as a norm, was gone and wouldn't be back anytime soon. In 12 out of 29 continental countries, a majority of young adults declare that they are without religion. 81% of Frenchmen identified as Catholic as recently as 1986. That's not really a long time ago, just the blink of an eye. Uh, 1986, what happened there? Oh, Phantom of the Opera opened. And uh, was that the year the Bangles had a big hit with Walk Like an Egyptian or whatever? It's not that long ago. Uh, 81% of Frenchmen identified as Catholic in 1986. Now it's 47%. I've spoken around about Christmas time about the death of the church in France. Across the Atlantic, in the first two decades of this still new century, a fifth of Canadian churches have closed. In America, a population that identified as 91% Christian in 1976, uh, that's a little further uh, back than 1986, but still the day before yesterday, disco, Jimmy Carter, uh, 91% Christian in 1976, it's now down to 64% of Americans who identify as, as Christian. And that's actually headed to minority status very fast. We can argue about precisely what this all means, but when it's happening that fast, it surely means something. You know, a few days ago on The Mark Stein Show, you may have seen me talking to Douglas Murray about the strange death of Europe. And Douglas is not a believing Christian, but he understands that uh, the lack of believing Christians is a bit of a problem. Uh, for Europe. And his solution, and I would say, I think I've said this before, I'm not saying anything out of turn, because his book on the subject is very good. But the weakest bit about it is when he says, well, okay, yeah, you know, okay, even if we can't be believing Christians, we should recognize that what he calls cultural Christianity, that the best buildings in our civilization were built, the great cathedrals built as monuments to God, the greatest music in our civilization. Likewise, the greatest paintings in our civilization. Likewise. So why don't we all just become culturally Christian? And if you don't believe that Jesus was crucified on the cross and then rose again this very weekend, uh, well, you can at least, you know, enjoy the hymns and the old buildings and the beautiful language of the Book of Common Prayer and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, it reminded me a bit of uh, Michel Welbeck's uh, fantastic novel about the first Muslim <laughs> president of France and the first Muslim uh, government, Soumission, Submission, in which, before the final denouement, about which I've written and spoken before, in which he tries to recover his lost Catholic faith. And he goes uh, to stay at a monastery, and he, make, and he makes a far greater effort 
than most people do, even, you know, Douglas Murray or whatever, to recover that lost Christian faith. And he just cannot do it. He cannot do it. And in the void where his uh, opened up by his lost Christianity, something else steps in. It's uh, it's a brilliant novel in that respect because it foretells, I think, the likely future until something uh, changes. But just to go back to what uh, Douglas was saying, you know, why can't we? You know, at a certain point, everybody in um, the UK, in Canada, in on. In Australia and most parts of the British Commonwealth, certainly the British West Indies, is knows what Douglas means because they're the last generation who went to school every morning, and school started with a an assembly, very much in the form of a religious service, and you sang uh, all things bright and beautiful. Uh, we plough the fields and scatter, and those hymns stay with you, even if you only go to church once every couple of Christmases or once every five or six Easter's or whatever. Um, but it doesn't, it, there's not going to be that. Even Douglas is still a young man. I think he's uh, half my age or whatever it is. Uh, but people who are half Douglas's age, it's not the same, you know. So a generation that's grown up with drag queen story time is never going to know about uh, we plough the fields and scatter. Uh, so it's not even going to have residual cultural Christianity. And the fact of the matter is that if you, uh, if your idea of, uh, of uh, if you think back to your childhood and your school days, and it's drag queen story time, you're not gonna, you're not going to be able. The idea of even finding a cultural connection with Bach with the uh, St. Matthew uh, pageant, with Leonardo's painting of The Last Supper. Uh, that, cult, that cultural connection isn't going to be there anymore. So I thought Douglas was being a little naive about all that, uh, to be honest, uh, just the thought that occurs this Good Friday. Todd Hines says, Hi, Mark. After a 50-some-year personal run of Good Friday services... My church locked me out of the last three, and today I'm having trouble mustering the energy to return. It's not a crisis of personal faith, but I suppose the result of a crisis of organizational fortitude. For much of the last three years, I could buy a paintbrush at Walmart, but couldn't enter my place of worship. At least Walmart knows what it's here for, to sell me cheap Chicom crap at any time of day or night. The 2,000-year-old church? I thought it was in the business of eternal salvation and providing its congregation with the opportunity to, well, congregate. But it went along with the nonsense and agreed to lock its parishioners out. Um, I, it got me thinking that John O'Sullivan's Law might need some updating. This, uh, If you know O'Sullivan's Law, it's that all organizations that are not explicitly uh, right-wing will over time become left-wing. Uh, and he, uh, Todd, thinks it might need uh, simplifying as much as updating just to all organizations will over time become left-wing. Per Sullivan... 
Previously non-ideological institutions, from media to universities, corporations to medicine, have already become completely left-wing, but nominally conservative media and politicians, the Vatican, heck, even Project Veritas, are all in the throes of a leftward globalist slide. So my questions, can we count on one hand the number of organizations that today have not been infected to some degree, and other than the Mark Stein Club, oh, we're thinking of going left-wing and globalist too. By the way, we we we're just uh, we're 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 just gonna you know it's you won't notice it at first, but you'll uh, it'll be a bit like GB News uh, in three or four months' time. You'll be thinking, wait a minute, this this joint didn't used to be like this. Uh, anyway. Uh, will any of these organizations be willing and able to resist in the future, says Todd. You know, it's one of the odd things about this. Uh, We've discussed it on the Mark Stein Show. Alexandra has uh, written, Alexandra Marshall at The Spectator, has written uh, uh, several columns about it, about how wokeness is really a a new religion. And... um, uh, my response to her, obviously, was that it, the awful, ugly thing about it is that it's a religion without the possibility of redemption. It doesn't matter if you've done good works for the last 15 years, if 16 years ago you had a transphobic uh, tweet. So it's a religion without the possibility of redemption. But just to go back to what Todd was saying, what's interesting to me is how whatever branch of the uh, Christianity you incline to, um, they're all uh, they've all taken on a lot of the wokery. Uh, I regard Pope Francis and the present Archbishop of Canterbury as jokes as church leaders. Um, they're they're uh, Pope Pope Francis has done is quite on board with the leftward slide of the church, and the Archbishop of Canterbury even more so. And what's interesting to me is that it's a bit like, I, I make a point in The Prisoner of Winds, actually, I draw a comparison between the decline of uh, monarchy and the decline of faith in Europe. And one of the interesting things, we've sort of, I wrote it before uh, the the Queen died, obviously, but one thing I notice is that the the monarchy's own the the king, uh, the heir, and the spare are all the same when it comes to things like climate change or trans or whatever. And likewise, it is with uh, Pope Francis on climate change and with uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury on climate change and all the things. And in America, it's a little different. It's supposed to be a little different. But uh, you look at it, you know, we used to talk about the evangelical Christian vote was always taken to be a block vote for conservatism and Republicans. I'm not sure it's quite such a block vote today. And beyond that, the so-called faith-based institutions, a phrase I don't really like, because actually when you look at them, they're not really based on their faith anymore. I wrote a column about this, I would say, oh, I don't know, seven, eight, maybe ten years ago my syndicated column in America. And uh, it was after uh, seeing the St. Michael's College, Vermont, 
a Christmas card. Now, this is a supposedly Catholic college. It's where Patrick Leahy, a recently retired senator uh, and a supposed Catholic, worships. Um, but, it's, uh, but its Christmas card was just sort of secular, bland, New Age, sort of Gaia-worshipping pap. And the question of how much faith there is, uh, even in so-called faith-based institutions, is a huge one. And when you listen to, uh, well, for example, the other churches of the Anglican Communion, not the Episcopal Church in America or the Anglican Church of Canada or the Anglican Church of Australia, but uh, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was dropping hints about how he's hot for same-sex marriage. Now you can take whatever view you want of same-sex marriage, but there is no uh, point pretending that the Church of England or the Christian Church more broadly or the Bible uh, has ever entertained such a notion ever. So it, it, it is a, it would be a move that uh, opens up a huge, well, it's already opening up a huge schism. The minute he sort of started musing about his personal feelings on it, um, the, more, the African churches, uh, where there are far more worshippers on a Sunday morning than there ever are in the UK, Canada, and the US combined, um, the African church, that, and that's just Nigeria, actually. Nigeria has more Anglicans at church on a Sunday than the UK, uh, US, and Canada combined. So they're already saying, well, you know, we recognize you as the home church of Anglicanism. We're not going to do that if this is going to be your next move. So that's the question. Faith in faith-based institutions. Michael Andrews says, Hi, Mark, I've been reading Camus, The Plague, <laughs> uh, and thinking about, I haven't read that since school, but I enjoyed it at school, and thinking about Christianity, the Exodus story, and our current post-Christian hell on earth. I just listened again to your Clubland Q&A from a year ago in which you lament that in American government, no one is ever punished for his crimes, far less his catastrophic blunders. I must suggest that we, the people, are punished instead, and that today God, as Camus says, has completely lost his patience with us. He will not forgive us until we stop forgiving our governmental malefactors. Oh my! Well, I think that's an actual good, you know, I think it, a couple of people have made this in response to last night's Mark Stein show, which was a compilation show looking back at our coverage of the great evil of modern England. I say England because, you know, it's a phenomenon of mass immigration as, as much as anything. And simply as a point of fact, in rural Wales or the Scottish Highlands, or uh, most of Northern Ireland, there are not as many of the particularly relevant demographic here. But several people commented, which is quite reasonable, that, you know, it's a bad thing to be raped. It's a bad thing that the police and the politicians and the social services do nothing about it. But it is also bad that uh, a docile English populace, and you may have seen a certain Pratt from a, I think a store called Retail Furniture in Telford, 
who's been sending uh, uh, very uh, rude emails to our friend Samantha Smith, who's a survivor of the hellhole of Telford and is now challenging the Telford council leader for his seat on the council. And uh, and it, it, the quiescence of the masses, the quiescence of the masses, uh, confronted with a great evil, uh, such as what goes on in Telford, Rotherham, Rochdale, Oxford, Banbury, and on and on. The quiescence of the people, again, it's, it's a line I quote all the time, the great George Orwell line after he returned very disappointed um, at uh, uh, at a miners' meeting he'd been to, uh, coal miners, and he said, uh, there is no turbulence left in England. There's no turbulence left in England. Uh, not Well, there's not a lot of turbulence left anywhere. In America, it's explicitly, and, and Canada, uh, the likelihood of turbulence has been diminished um, because of what happened. Nobody wants what happened to the January 6th people to happen. I mean, that's that's wicked. I'm, I'm going to trial in that decadent and depraved jurisdiction where uh, you have a constitution. And this is where, again, the constitution, goodbye. Uh, this is where the constitution guys don't get it. This has all happened under the constitution. You have a right to a speedy trial, uh, but not so fast, because we can hold you for two years in solitary awaiting a scheduling conference for your speedy trial. And during that time, we can lean on you to confess and settle. And in Canada, as you saw, which generally doesn't have as crap and evil a so-called justice system as America. Stop waving that constitution at me. That constitution, everything that's happened to you leading up to the arrest of a president on Tuesday has happened under that constitution. And in Canada, which doesn't have as depraved a justice system, nevertheless, after the Canadian truckers had their bank, uh, well, donors to the Canadian truckers had their bank accounts frozen, that's not actually going to do a lot. Uh, for uh, mass protest, uh, is it? And we've seen in France, in France where they still do mass protests, three million people out in the streets, uh, whatever it was, two weeks ago. And yet uh, Macron had no trouble passing a law making it illegal to protest in Paris and then uh, prosecuting a woman who posted on Facebook Macron garbage. Uh, so you're quite right, Michael, that it is on us to throw off these bastards. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, there are we we are being the 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 doors of protest are closing. That leaves the elections and uh, they're arresting the principal opposition candidate and they figure that by the time this plays out, it'll be uh, there'll be a Clinton and a Bush on the ticket, and that's enough choice for anyone. Um, Alison Castellina says, Mark asks for questions on the current state of the church. So here goes. The word church in Greek is ecclesia, meaning 
those called out. So the real church is all the called out people here, there, and everywhere known only to God. Any institution calling itself the institutional church is always a mixture of hypocrites, actors, and the converted. The aim of the former is to ape the world's fashions and ideologies and erase the authority of scriptural doctrine. When this happens, the institutional church empties, which we are now seeing in the West. Do you agree that the future belongs to an underground movement called Christianity rather than to an established institution, and that believers should busily start regrouping to prepare for that inevitable outcome? There's a lot of uh, well, there's a lot of truth in that. It goes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about uh, Justin Welby and Pope Francis, um, just appallingly unimpressive people who are presiding over the decline and maybe the death of their churches. There is also another problem, I would say, in that when I mentioned the rate of which uh, a fifth of Canadian churches have closed since the beginning of the century, um, it it become it, because they uh, in it's difficult finding priests. That's what's so astonishing to me about France. Basically, the churches there are in law just municipal buildings. They're very nice to go in. They're beautiful, build beautiful medieval. Nothing like going into a, you know, a thirteenth century church, and hearing a beautiful choir. I went to a lovely. Uh, uh, Christmas uh, concert uh, during my recovery. It was felt it wouldn't tax me unduly in in France, and I heard them saying, singing "Il est né le divin enfant" and all that kind of thing, and it was absolutely beautiful. But that church in which uh, the uh, the uh, state authorities have sent around touring choral groups. That church was not holding a Christmas mass. It was very sad to me that um, people, I, I was talking to um, a, a little old lady who was bemoaning that because of the shortage of priests, even on Christmas Day, you have to drive further and further for a to, to hear a Christmas mass. So those are going to become buildings uh, and uh, that are owned by the state in in Canada, I suppose you know they become some. They become gay nightclubs or whatever. They become something else. But uh, there is, as Allison suggests, um, oh yeah. Just let me finish that thought about the the shortage of priests. That these priests. It's one thing when you're drawing your priests from the generality of the population. You know, when uh, 90-something percent identify as Christian. And so there's a uh, – that's that's your pool of human capital that are going to the seminaries and and so forth. The danger is, as uh, church becomes more and more of a minority interest, that you're not actually – the the best of your talent – uh, goes elsewhere and does other things. And so it's not just the actual number of priests, it's that the priests themselves, well, and simply, you know, as in the French situation, you can't be a parish priest if your parish includes what was until 
30 years ago, uh, 25 separate parishes. So there's there's that issue uh, too. So there's a lot of there's a lot of issues about the church uh, in decline con- connected to uh, as Todd and Michael have said, uh, the general left-wing hollowing out of all other institutions. I should also say that what Todd was talking about, you know, if anyone should have stood up against lockdown, it's the church. It's not, it's, um, to disagree with Alison slightly, you know, a church of one, God is not commending to us a church of one. A church is a communal institution. Uh, and so when the um, when when uh, the state orders the church to close and say, oh, you can do this wacky praying stuff via Zoom, they are actually changing the nature of religion. And they're making it particularly at a time when, you know, people are leading more isolated lives as they were during lockdown. And when they were coping with they not being able to see their, you know, so your beloved mother dies alone in hospital and you can't go and see her. That's actually a, a, a moment when the church might have actually been of some solace to people. And so the fact that the church went along with the state and you look at these boob, particularly in the UK, these boob bishops, they never got anything to say about uh God and the transcendent, but they're happy to have views on Dominic Cummings driving uh, his kid off to his grandparents in defiance of law. That they've got plenty of things to say about, but not about God and the transcendent. Okay, we're going to get a little transcendent here. Little Easter music, because I didn't intend to <laughs> get this glum about things. Not on Good Friday, where, you know, it's about the, uh, this weekend is about the ultimate surprise ending in defiance of, uh, uh, of the odds. And that is worth bearing in mind, too. That is worth bearing in mind. Uh, Allegri's Miserere. Do you know it? It's one of the choral works that's most associated with Holy Week. Uh, the composer's setting of the 51st Psalm. It was written during the reign of Pope Urban VIII, circa 1638. And it's been a part of Easter worship ever since. Uh, but we have some uh, choral music coming up a little later. So I thought just for a change, we would let the brass handle it on this outing. This is Norway's most famous brass band, named after a merger of two village bands on the banks of the Osterfjorden, uh, where I was, oh, six or seven years ago. Um, this is the Eikanger Bjursvik brass band, Miserere May Deus. Have mercy on me, O oh God.
Music by Gregorio Allegri, but without the words of the 51st Psalm. The Ikanga Bjorsvik Brass Band from Norway, arranged and conducted by Reed Gillia. Uh, music for this Good Friday on Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A. It is 27 to 9, British summertime, a little behind... Uh, or a lot ahead, maybe even Easter Saturday, according to where you chance to be this Easter weekend. Let's get back to your questions. Uh, Pete Procopio uh, says, uh, Mark, as millions remember the resurrection and Pentecost, I happened upon a Wall Street Journal survey that found just 39% of Americans believe Religion is very important to them, down from 62% 25 years ago. No real surprise in those numbers, judging by the anecdotal evidence all around. However, I'm left wondering if America is no longer a nation rooted in Christianity and natural law. What are we now? The answers I came to were pretty awful. I'm one of those dinosaurs that believes we all have a God-shaped hole in us we spend our lives trying to fill. And if you remove faith, what we're left with is frightening. Do you have any thoughts? Well, what you get is people want meaning in their lives. So when when you talk about, I felt very, and this is where someone like Michelle Welbeck and Douglas Murray uh, see the problem, even if they are non-believers themselves. And it's, it's, you know, it's a problem if you think, yeah, all this would be solved if I believed, but I can't will myself uh, to do it. Because everybody wants some meaning in their life. There's very few people who can be uh, hardcore atheists in the way that uh, Richard Dawkins is or, say, Christopher Hitchens was, and just accept that you're here for a tiny sliver of a moment and then you're gone, and that's it. Everybody wants to be part of a uh, something greater. And so that's why something like you you have the church of, of climate change. People uh, people want to be, you know, okay, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not really into, like, going to some boring old building and listening to some bloke read things from a book that I can't really get into. But I'm, uh, yeah, I'm very spiritual. I, I like to, uh, I'm all about saving the planet, right? Uh, that's, that's the new, that's a new faith for somebody. Wokery is even taking it to the next level. And this is where the church is, inability to resist it is actually quite it i was going to say interesting but it's more than interesting it's tragic <laughs> um because because wokery in essence is the church of yourself i am my own god i am my own god i i i was born into a boy's body and the haters at the hospital they wrote down on my birth certificate sex male but I am my own God, so I am become female. Uh, just as Jesus Christ was dead and then he was alive, so I was a man and now I am a woman because it is the church of myself, which is what uh, people have contented themselves with. Uh, Todd Lewis says, I'd come. 
I'd commented recently that Christianity is, in fact, the basis of Western civilization. Uh, I suggested that Christian culture has an inherent problem because it seeks to grant grace, forbearance, and kindness to those who are not genuine believers. It doesn't seek to ruin, cancel, jail, or kill those who do not subscribe to the faith. I wonder if you have a theory as to why this outlook has been rejected and Jacobinism and Bolshevism seem to have become the new model for civilization. Well, you know, uh, Islam, the di- I, the, I wrote about this in America Alone, the difference between Islam and Christianity, which both started in the same neck of the woods, although several centuries apart, uh, but Christianity spread from its tiny little birthplace in what we used to call the Holy Land. Does anyone say the Holy Land anymore? used to be uh, whatever my Ladybird children's books, which I think are still around, but there was one that was all about the Holy Land. I don't think they call it that anymore. But anyway, uh, those fellas took Christianity and they fanned out across what was then uh, the Roman Empire and they, and they spread Christianity by persuasion. Islam spread by the sword you know, and people were converted uh, because Islam had conquered the landscape. And what I find interesting is that now even attempting to convert people is seen as somehow sinful. So, for example, well, you may have heard my dear friend Monique Fauteur sing um, the Huron Carol, North America's oldest carol, and uh, there are there are verses in English and French and Wendat, uh, the language of the Huron people. Uh, when that happened, well, that happened right here at Stein Online on Christmas Eve. Anyway, uh, because because the uh, the settlers to North America, English or French. Protestant or Catholic, had converted huge numbers of Indians, the native Indians and Inuit, the native populations, to Christianity. And now that is, and if you, what is at heart the essence of the residential school system, the idea that, uh, that, that uh, in Canada, the the Indian people should be brought within the norms of Canadian society, including Christianity. Converting Indians is now seen as a great evil. It's not evil, apparently, for Islam to convert large numbers of Europeans, especially women, uh, who like the smack of firm uh, patriarchy, for which Islam is renowned, apparently. So it's not illegal, uh, like the wife of the Boston bomber, who was like a nice little Connecticut girl from a nice little Connecticut town, nice little crabbed house with a picket fence. And her parents did the NPR thing, uh, the PBS thing, absolutely delighted that their family was becoming super diverse when her daughter married a guy who beat the crap out of her and she converted to Islam. Uh, but you, but but conversion is supposed so so the problem here here the problem for an institution like the Anglican Church is that it's it gives the impression that it's a that it's a club. Yes, you can be born into it, 
yes, you can be grandfathered into it, but it's not a club that is really interested in new members. Uh, Simon Arnold says, Hi, Mark. I live in northern Scotland, Caithness. The churches are rarely open and most of them have been or will be sold off. My nearest church is just three minutes away. Church of Scotland, England and wherever has become woke. I think there's nothing sad. I I think there's nothing sadder than a building that was once a church but is a church no longer. Um, Sandra Robinson says, uh, Hi, Mark. A year after our friend Ava Velardinger broke, said we needed more Christianity. Yeah, that was Ava on the uh, Maundy Thursday edition of the Mark Stein Show. Uh, Ava said we needed more Christianity. I agree, says Sandra, but whilst organized Christianity and regular fuller church going would help to rebalance the much more widespread and authoritarian religion of Islam, where death is imposed on any member leaving, I believe that Christianity's organization of after the death of Jesus was politicized, its gospels selected, destroyed, or kept secret, its rituals acquired wealth and control, and most important of all, its priesthood middlemen contact with God gave it a man-made and accepted direct line to God, which ordinary people have, if they believe. Worldwide globalist religion has developed great power, which it has and still does misuse. But despite all of this, Christianity is intended to be good. Ordinary people want it to be a force for good and simple, humble faith in perhaps this only other dimension to experience any justice when cruelly denied on earth. Because, and I can only describe this as a worldwide evil, the World Economic Forum uh, intended elite single world government with a great reset and fourth industrial revolution is underway. The creation of transhumans from humans with injected microchips and robotic additions, transhumans most likely already rendered sterile by vaccinations or trans surgery, all without any ownership of anything, including freedom and fed on lab factory produced food. The world's resources being increasingly acquired, owned, controlled and removed from sight and access behind huge security by and for the elites and single government. Even religion misused has not gone this far. And middle people aside, I have faith that with a comprehension of right and wrong and conscience, there is likely to be a spiritual dimension that cannot be reached during life on earth, but can, I hope, provide justice that has not been achieved on earth. And that's... Um, well, that's well put. The Catholic Church is uh, the oldest corporate entity on earth, the oldest, the only one still extant, uh, as it were. Uh, and uh, as you say, uh, even at the height of its power, it never had the ambition that the World Economic Forum uh, has. When you listen to what they talk uh, about, you know, Tony Blair talking about the chipping of every human being because we're going to have to do that because we're going to need to know how many vaccine booster shots they've had and everything. 
Uh, and the idea, and you know when you listen to Klaus Schwab, who's, I don't know, what he, what is he now, 87? But he plans, he plans to be around an, at least another 87 years, and uh, it's, it's only going to be some dark, maniacal technology that is going to be able to do that for the guy. Um, they, they say all this stuff openly, openly. And I think the idea that there can be a any kind of it will be a the 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 world the WEF is planning is actually a sec, most secular most persons without faith are content to lead rather trivial lives you know their celebrities and footballers and whatever are enough for them to be interested in but when you when you have uh, secular secularism taken to the next level, as they're doing at the WEF level, at the planet saving level, you know, as I said, at the uh, they're not like the woke. They're not like Dylan Mulvaney. I am my own god. Okay, I've got a penis, but I'm a woman because I say so. I am God. I don't have to create a woman from Adam's spare rib. I can just put on a dress and be a woman. And I can take off my dress. And I am demanding that Playboy make me next month's centerfold to show they're not transphobic. Because I am my own God and I can proclaim me a woman. But the fact is that the the elites, the guys like Klaus Schwab, think they're gods, think they can reinvent humanity. The things we're doing now that we often talk about on the show, where they created, you know, uh, they figured out a way to breed uh, for single same-sex mice to have a same-sex union and get a baby out of it. Because that's what they want to do next. Because none of, no, none of these guys doing the same-sex marriage and wanting to have children uh, want to have to go through. It's all a bit sleazy having to go on the Internet and rent a womb from Cindy May in Alabama or whatever and pay her, you know, 300 bucks or whatever she'll do it for to uh, get the old beaker full of uh, sperm FedExed over to her. They don't want to do that. So what they're going to, this idea that they can put a womb inside a man and a child can grow without benefit of Cindy May's fallopian timeshare. Again, it's man as God, man as God. Um, and there's an, and there's an uh, awful lot of that about uh, an awful lot of that about. Nicola Timmerman says, do you have a favorite Christian film? I miss when the networks used to play films like The Ten Commandments at Easter time or Christmas. Ben-Hur is my favorite. I also like Jesus of Nazareth by Zeffirelli. That's a favorite of mine too, actually, Nicola. Uh, but we've reposted my review of uh, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's film. And I do like that film. I like I like that uh, film a lot. Uh, Frank Gallenstein says, Hi, Mark. I enjoyed this week's shows, especially the interview with Conrad Black. Conventional wisdom says Trump cannot beat Joe Biden in 2024. Not true. 
As you've often stated, Trump does not seek your advice, but you've articulated a strategy that I believe will bring him victory. It reinforced Russia's saying, only Donald Trump can defeat Donald Trump. I believe many people have overlooked the impact COVID had on the 2020 election. The pandemic was at its infancy. Uh, maybe. It was actually, whatever it was, it was uh, eight or nine months old by then, though, and a lot of people were already sick of all the all the uh, lockdown stuff. Uh, but uh, Frank continues, the pandemic was at its infancy and it was on the minds of all of us. Biden, with the help of the media, got away with blaming COVID on Trump. Even Big Pharma avoided helping Trump by announcing prior to the election they had a shot for COVID. Yeah, they waited for him to be defeated, and then they said, oh, by the way, look at these vaccines. Now Biden has a track record on COVID, and it stunk. Mandates and lockdowns, and these still resonate in voters' minds. Couple that with Biden's awful foreign and domestic policy decisions, and Biden is ripe for defeat by Trump. A million indictments can't stop Trump if he were to follow your advice and stick to how he will fix this mess. What say ye? Well, I remember I was talking about this just earlier today, actually, when I went to see Trump in Burlington, Vermont, which isn't friendly Trump territory. Um, but people there, people came out of there. There were people with tears in. There were people laughing a lot because he was very funny. But there were also people with tears in their eyes because for the very first time they were hearing a politician or a political candidate at any rate uh, talk about the things that were wrong in their lives and promising to fix them. And what is... Uh, disturb. What you know? The big news this week is that uh, Trump was arraigned on Tuesday. The other big news that people really didn't pay attention to was how badly that same Tuesday Republican candidates did in places like Wisconsin. In other words, just to go back to November, there are still a lot of people for whom uh, how things are going. Thing, things, things, you know, Conrad's point was, look, Biden is the worst president since before the Civil War. But, but in key critical places around the country, people don't see it like that. You know, Western civilization is dying on America's watch. That's basically the short version of what's happening. And the... Uh, and and the rising powers, including people that actually are quite well disposed toward America, like Brazil and India, have nevertheless concluded that America's a busted flush and it's headed for the garbage can of history. And nothing that Joe Biden does gives them any cause to re revisit that assessment. So they're reaching their accommodations with the future. So BRICS is Brazil, Russia, India, China, Saudi Arabia. And they're all making plans to yank the rug out from under the U.S. dollar. And when that happens, America is in for a collapse on a scale because it's, it hasn't got sound finances uh, you know, if you look at when America threatened to yank the rug out from under Sterling during the Suez Crisis, Britain had war debt. It had war debt 
because for a, a crucial year and a half, the British Empire was all that stood, uh, was, was the only part of the free world left standing up to Hitler and German and, and Germany's ambitions. So that's a, not a bad reason for going into debt. Going into debt to do the things that you can see around here, turn some sleepy little border post uh, on a piece of two-lane blacktop in the middle of the Great North Woods, like they did at North Troy, Vermont, to widen it to six lanes on the American side, uh, even though it only gets two cars per hour. You've run up $32 trillion and counting in debt for nothing. So that when, when, the, when sterling ceased to be the global reserve currency, uh, in, well, in Harold Wilson's famous phrase, it doesn't affect the pound in your pocket. When the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and Saudi Arabia, decide, okay, let's yank the rug out from under the dollar now, whoosh, the, the dollar in your pocket is going to be worthless and you are headed in the express elevator to basement sub-level 43. And getting out of there is going to be a real challenge. Um, but but, but the, the, the problem is, you know, half the country isn't going to... You can talk about that. Actually, very few Republicans talk about that. Um, I talk about it on the Mark Stein show. I don't know how many Americans actually take it all seriously. But the fact of the matter is that half... Half the country is still happy to... They don't accept Conrad's thing, that he's basically the worst president since before the Civil War. Trump is, Trump is, in, a, is in a difficult position here. I keep coming back to this. He needs a second act. He needs a second act, and he needs to be uh, make it clearer, the link between the assaults on him and the American people. What it's about, it's like rolling back Brexit. It's exactly the same. They're trying to teach people a lesson that basically the, the path the elites are on cannot be altered, cannot be altered. Um, leave the gun, take the cannoli, possibly not his real name, uh, says over at Tacky Mag, Ann Coulter posited that all this Trump indictment stuff is a ruse that the Democrats are playing, such that all this will garner sympathy, empathy, so Trump gets the Republican nomination. Succinctly, the Democrats feel Trump is easier to beat in the general election than, say, younger, vibrant candidates like DeSantis or even Nikki Haley, competences aside. I kind of agree with Miss Coulter in that Trump is his own worst enemy, off in directions depending how well you ingratiated yourself to him. Further, he continues to take poor advice from those around him, setting his supporters up for disappointment. Well, he, he, I don't know. I'm not so, it may well be that Democrats think that, but they thought that in 2016, didn't they? The reason CNN and everybody else gave hours and hours and hours of free coverage to Trump was because it was good for A, good for ratings, and B, they thought he'd be the easy, they didn't believe their luck. 
They thought, oh, my God, we're going to have to run against Jeb Bush and John or John Kasich. And we'll never beat those guys. But look at this. Trump's coming down the elevator at Trump Tower. He's bonkers. Why don't we try Trump, tie Trump to the Republican brand and then Hillary's a shoe in? And it didn't work in 2016. I have no idea. Because the great thing about the crapola American system is that you have campaigns without end, two-year campaigns. You know, I mentioned our pal Samantha Smith is standing for Telford and Rekin Council. This is April. The election's in May. So, you know, the campaign's a month and change or whatever it is. Not like that in America. Certainly not in New Hampshire, where you have to spend years putting up with these stupid, soft-focus ads from Marco Rubio bleating about a second American century. Could you actually talk about something relevant to people's lives, like, uh, you know, how to make what's left of this bloke's life expectancy marginally less crap? where his daughter's reduced to doing the night shift at the quickie crap and his uh, son's a a heroin dealer, because that's actually more interesting than doing the night shift at the quickie crap. You know, the stupid campaign without end prioritizes politicians. This is again, don't wave that constitution at me. Take your constitution because all this has happened under your constitution. It's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to get you anywhere, all this. Here's the, the problem with these two-year campaigns is that it, they elevate politicians and personal stories and soft-focus ads uh, and stump speeches over politics. So there's no room for the Thatcher formula. You know, first you win the argument, uh, then you win the election. What Trump did... This was what was so weird about it is he's the celebrity candidate, but he was the only one actually talking about issues that mattered to the American people. That Trump in 2015 was fabulous, way better than Marco Marco Rubio. We need a second American century. Uh, Really? Are you sure about that? Because, you know, after 20 years in Afghanistan, maybe all these American centuries, uh, maybe that's where the problem lies. Uh, I I might be wrong, but maybe we should have a discussion about this instead of just making crap soft focus ads. Or John Kasich doing is the only man who could ever reach me was the son of a man. I mean, honestly. Anyway, so that's the thing. That's the thing is to connect what's happened to him to, and this is why it would have been better for him to speak up for those January 6th guys. Because the January, Trump is the January 6th QAnon shaman writ large, screwed over by your dirty, stinking, rotten, evil, corrupt, American uh, justice system. Uh, let, let we have, what do we have here? Johnny Woodrow says, Mark, I love watching the MAGA media from the UK. I've recently got a mug from one of their TV stations and I want a MAGA hat, not because I'm optimistic about the future of the USA, but because I figure that if the West is done for, I might as well hang out in the gift shop. Just as one end of the Titanic went up in the air before it went down to the seabed, the MAGA media seemed to think that a rise in Trump's popularity among Republicans might mean the USA can be saved. 
However, the Daily Wire reported survey data that support for patriotism and the desire for marriage and children in the U.S. are well below 30%. Is there a silent conservative majority in the USA or have they really settled for the permanent technocratic big state with the soap opera sideshow every four years, asks Johnny Woodrow. Yeah, it was very interesting that. Uh, it, I don't think it's below 30 percent, the patriotic feeling, but it's it's in the 30s. I think it was the Pew, a Pew poll or something like this. I don't know what it actually means, but I think uh, if you look at the uh, Biden agenda, as a, he's fully on board with all the trans stuff, for example. He's fully on board with slicing the breasts off middle school girls so they can pretend to be boys. Uh, And it goes back to the point that Veronica uh, uh, made in our comment section, Veronica from Auckland, are we the bad guys? Are we the bad guys? Um, And I think that makes it difficult to be patriotic. And that, that also is why this sort of constitutional conservatism, you know, which does... It doesn't. It doesn't seem up to the scale of the problem. It might be nice for Mark Levin and those kind of chaps if America did go back to its constitution. But we've had almost a century now of extra constitutional activity by government, and so actually looking back to an entirely constitutional regime as written out in that document. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking now about torturing the language, as, which is the constitutional model here. You've got nine judges, and if five of them can torture the language sufficiently to find a constitutional pretext for something, then that's constitutional. Well, you know, cutting the breasts off middle school girls is apparently constitutional. So I don't think, I think this talk about a silent, you know, the silent majority, that was all very well in Spiro Agnew's day. But when you have had uh, over half a century of mass immigration, when you have had the appalling um, education system that you have in you, uh, you know, we come back to where we came in, where, you know, Douglas Murray wants people to be in the religious sense uh culturally conservative, that he wants them to like old hymns and old liturgy and old buildings uh, enough to patronize them in sufficient numbers uh, that it it preserves a core identity. And, And as I said right at the top of the show, I don't think it's likely that uh, that a generation that's grown up with drag queen story time is going to be terribly receptive to the St. Matthew passion. Um, <laughs> uh, but I am. I am. And we like the St. Matthew passion. These are terrible times. You know, these are and they're worth reflecting on on a on a day like Good Friday. That that when the things we are doing, particularly the things we are doing to our children, whether we're talking about the bodily mutilation that uh, that we call gender affirming, gender affirming, which means we perform 
bodily mutilations that would make people sterile and impotent and fertile. So on the one hand, or just ignoring the industrial scale gang rape of children uh, that I was talking about on last night's Mark Stein show. Uh, you do sense that when a, a nation or a civilization loses its faith. And I was very struck at the time of the European Constitution talk, which is almost 20 years ago now, but uh, going, uh, speaking to big shots at the European Commission, they would use the phrase post-Christian Europe approvingly. I'd never heard that. I'd heard like uh, clerics, ministers, religious scholars talk about post-Christian Europe as a bad thing. And it was startling to hear Eurocrats use the phrase post-Christian Europe as a good thing. Because in the vacuum, uh, to, go, to, to go back to that great poem, Dover Beach, and if you haven't seen it, it's there on our Sunday poems, me doing it. The melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. Well, we are quite well advanced into that melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. And it's no coincidence that that is coinciding with terrible, terrible, evil things like this uh, mutilation in the name of gender affirming. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we shall attempt to uh, raise our eyes uh, heavenward and uh, celebrate the transcendent. It's not often that we reprise a piece of music on this show, but it is Good Friday. And after I played this piece last Good Friday, I received a ton of requests to play it again, which we don't really do, um, but it's a Good Friday piece of music and a fabulous one, one of the finest musical meditations on the day, written by Haydn upon the invitation of a canon at the Cathedral of Cadiz, uh, who paid the composer by sending him a cake filled with gold coins. I thought uh, Angelus Flopidopoulos might have done that uh, to me when he bounced me from GB News, sent me a cake filled with gold coins, but he has no style, the bum. Uh, this this piece was first performed in 1786 at the Good Friday service in Cadiz. Uh, but after eating his cake from the canon, Haydn spent the next decade reworking it in various forms. It was originally an orchestral composition. Then he rescored it for string quartet. Then he transcribed it for solo piano. And finally, he wrote it up as an oratorio, which I think was what the canon probably had in mind uh, when he'd uh, ordered up the cake and the gold coins originally. I doubt you've heard it quite like this before, unless you were tuned in a year ago. Because this is a combination of two of uh, Haydn's versions, as it were. The choral text accompanied by a chamber ensemble. Seraphic fire with the spectral quartet. Haydn called the piece the seven last words of our Saviour on the cross, being the seven utterances Jesus is reported to have spoken during his crucifixion. This is the conclusion of the work, a great composer's interpretation 
of the very last words Christ spoke on this day, Good Friday. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit.
To thy hands I commend my spirit. The last words on the cross from Jesus of Nazareth this Good Friday. Vata in deiner Hande gebe ich meinen Geist. The conclusion of Haydn's great masterwork on this theme in a choral chamber version with seraphic fire handling the words and the spectral quartet playing the notes. We will have more seasonal observances coming up this Easter weekend at Stein Online. Happy Easter! Happy Passover!
Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.